What is up, listeners of the world? My name is Jalen Tully, and welcome to J Talks. What's up, guys, and welcome back to J Talks. It's been a while. It's been about two weeks. And before I jump into this week's episode, I do just want to explain why I took the last two weeks off and what you can expect from this week's episode, given that you haven't heard from me in a while. So as I'm sure you already know, I have not uploaded a podcast episode for the last two Sundays. That is because about a week ago, I took a vacation to go see some of the family that I haven't seen since before the pandemic even hit. The Thanksgiving before the pandemic, I believe, Thanksgiving of 2019, I took a week off about six days to go out of state to see my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, and like I said, just some of the people that I haven't seen since before the pandemic hit. I have a baby cousin that I haven't seen because he was born during the pandemic. I have younger cousins that have grown up almost two years since I last saw them. And I wanted to just enjoy that time and not have to really think about school, not have to think about the podcast, not have to think about my responsibilities back home. I wanted to just be present in those moments and I wanted to be present with my family and just overall enjoy the time, the little time that I had with them for the first time in almost two full years. But it was wonderful. Um, it was it was so nice to see everyone. It was so nice to be with my family and be around everyone. Almost all of us were fully vaccinated, so it was completely safe. We ate together, we laughed together, we spent time with one another. It was it was truly wonderful to just see everyone and be in the vicinity of people who I love and who love me. It was it was just it was just nice to be around family and I'm sure those of you who haven't seen family since before the pandemic or who just recently have been able to reconnect with family that you haven't seen since before the pandemic know exactly what I'm talking about and understand exactly how I feel. So as as we get back to some sense of normalcy as people start to get vaccinated and as we start to sort of ease the safety precautions that we had in place when COVID was at its worst I hope that a lot of you are also able to reconnect with your family in the way that I just have because there's there's something so raw about it especially when you haven't seen them in in years like like a lot of us have. Um so yeah, it it was great. I'm so happy I did it. I'm so happy I saw everyone and I'm so happy more than anything that I that I didn't have to or feel obligated to focus on the podcast or focus on school or focus on any of my responsibilities back home and I was able to just be present in the moment and enjoy that time with them. And there's another reason why I took a little bit to come out with this week's episode. This week's episode is a doozy. As, I, as I've told you guys in a lot of previous episodes, this week I am going to be doing my A Year After George Floyd podcast episode. And it is, it is going to be heavy. It is going to be probably one of the most important episodes that I have created this far. And I wanted to, I wanted to make it good. I wanted to make it not just good. I wanted to make it great. I wanted to make it as close to perfect as I could. And doing something like that, making an episode like this, and doing an episode that will be this heavy, that will be this drenched in not just history, but in cru- crucial and life-changing events or events that have happened in our lifetime that are truly the turning point in history, in modern history. In the most simple sense of words, I wanted to do a good job on it and I wanted to make something that I was proud of, not just in remembrance of George Floyd, but in remembrance to every single victim of police brutality, in remembrance of every single person that has been a victim of police violence in the last year because of the murder of George Floyd. 
because of every single political event, blatant injustice, and social outcry that has taken place this year because of and following the death of George Floyd, I knew I needed to do a good job on this week's episode. And so not only the fact that I was going to see family and I wasn't going to focus on the episode, but more than anything, I wanted to make sure that I did this episode right. And I wanted to make sure I took the time and energy and, and put the thought into doing this episode right. So with all of that being said, yes, I am doing my A Year After George Floyd podcast episode this week. And this week, in that, in this episode, I want to take the time to examine the last year, where we were before George Floyd's death and where we are and still need to be now. And more than anything, I also want to take this as an opportunity to have a conversation about police brutality as a whole and every single instance that has plagued our news feeds and our social media and our TVs. And more than anything, I want to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, where it started, where it is now, and where I think it could go and where I think it should go. Now, finally, with all of the nitty gritty stuff out of the way, we can finally start this week's episode. I have heard a lot of people say, and the reason I'm repeating it now is because I wholeheartedly agree with it, that the death of George Floyd is easily probably the biggest instances of police brutality, along with the biggest police brutality court case since the beating of Rodney King. And I'm going to go into more in depth into the beating of Rodney King as I talk more about police brutality in our nation's history, so I'm not going to go too in depth about it now. But overall, there, there are some blatant similarities that, like I said, I'll talk about in a little bit. But when it, when it came to the actual court case, when it came to the trial, in terms of the prosecuting side, the evidence and testimonies that they brought forth were mainly centered around the actual video itself of George Floyd being murdered, on top of the fact that Chauvin has a ton of past transgressions with other civilians. Specifically, there have been 18 official complaints against Chauvin in the 19 years of him working for Minneapolis. That's about one complaint every single year on the force. And all but two of those complaints were closed without even being looked at. And I don't, I don't think any punishment or any justice came from any of the cases in general. So even the two cases that were glossed over and looked at, nothing came from them. And before I continue, I should probably just clarify two things. The first one being that I know I already talked about the trial a couple episodes ago when the verdict of the trial came out and Derek Chauvin was convicted of all three murder charges, but I do just want to go a little bit more in depth and talk about the trial a little bit more in depth and answer some of the questions that you may or may not have because I know I just did a brief gloss over because I told you guys in that episode that I was going to have a sit down and talk about the entire trial and the entire year that we've just had in depth in an entire episode. So I did just want to say that. And the second disclaimer I want to make is that I did not actually watch the trial. I, I saw snippets. If there were videos that popped up on my Twitter or my Instagram, then yes, I watched them. But even some of those I did not watch in their entirety because I, I've, I've seen this before. I don't need to watch children. I don't need to watch young men. I don't need to watch people sobbing up on a witness stand because they watched someone lose their life in front of them. That's not something I need to see. However, if there were videos that came up on my Twitter or came up on my Instagram, I did watch little snippets like that were like a couple minutes long. But even then, most of those I didn't even actually finish because again, it's it's just traumatic to have to see this. It's traumatic to have to see other black people being murdered. It's traumatic to have to see other black people on a witness stand being cross-examined, trying to have their experiences and trying to have what they saw, which was a man losing his life in front of them, invalidated. 
and having to look at the man who killed him in the same room, having to be in his presence, having to sit in the presence of such evil. Like, I, I didn't need to see that. I didn't need to see that. I didn't need to be exposed to that. So simply saying, I did not expose myself to that. But there was some testimonies that I did watch. There were some snippets of videos that I did watch. And when I tell you that they were absolutely gut-wrenching, I am not exaggerating. They had um, a, a little girl, I, I believe she was like seven or eight, um, testify. Obviously, they didn't film it because she's a minor, but they, they did have the transcript written up and she was she was there. She was watching George Floyd die and, and to hear or to read more so what she had to say about it, to, to read what a child, because that's what she was, she's a child, What to, to read what a child has to say about watching a man die in front of her, it taps into your soul in a way that I don't think many other things can. Same thing with the 17-year-old, the, the then 17-year-old girl, I should say, who was filming. The girl who was filming the entire thing was 17 years old at the time. She was 18 when she was called on the witness stand. So that video was filmed and it was publicized because she wasn't a minor at that time. And to hear what she had to say, to hear her experiences, to hear how she felt. And she was like, I, she's like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I could involve myself in this situation and do something on behalf of George Floyd that wouldn't also result in my own life being taken. And she said, you know, I, I, I wanted to be that person that filmed this. I wanted to be that person that got this video out there so that people could see what was happening to this man. And to, to hear a 17-year-old have to use that rationale when it comes to interacting with or being in the presence of police that are actively killing someone, again, just gut-wrenching in the absolutely same way that the, that, here, that, that reading the, the seven-year-old's testimony was. It's the same type of despicable, just, you know when like you're about to throw up and you like taste bile in your mouth? That's like what it did to me. Like I just, I felt like I was going to vomit. It just, watching that, it was terrible. They also, I believe, had a man who was shot by Chauvin and survive come up on the witness stand and share his experience with Chauvin in terms of his own interactions with police brutality in the Minneapolis Police Department, specifically with Derek Chauvin. This was a while ago. I think this was about five to six years ago. 2015, I want to say, but I could be mistaken, so don't quote me on that. But this man, he, he got shot in the stomach by Chauvin and he survived. And they had him come up on the witness stand and share his experiences to show that this is not an isolated incident, that Chauvin has a a history of being violent and by using lethal force against people who do not necessarily deserve it, who do not warrant that. I mean, Chauvin also has, I believe other than George Floyd, I believe Chauvin has three or four other murders on his record. He's killed three to four other people in his in his 19 years of working for the Minneapolis PD. That is disgusting. That is very concerning. Not only is it very concerning that he is able to just freely and comfortably murder four to five people and continue on with his life as a police officer, but more than anything, it's highly concerning that he's able to murder four to five other people and have the department around him not go, we have to do something about this because this is not okay and it's not acceptable. We can't have an officer in our department who feels comfortable going out and murdering civilians. The fact that nobody said that in his 19 years on the force, the fact that nobody opened up any more than two of those 18 complaints against him, and even the complaints that they did open up, they did nothing about. The fact that nobody took the time 
to try and sort out the the bad apple in their police department. That's what makes me think that it's not just bad apples. That's what makes me think that the entire goddamn tree is rotten. But to continue, I got a little bit off track there, but to continue, the um, the defense's arguments was that George Floyd did not die because of excessive force. He died due to a heart condition, hypertension, and opioid addiction. And he would have died anyways, despite Chauvin's excessive force. Um, I, I, I don't want to go too in-depth on that because it, there's just so much underlying racism and prejudice and bias behind that argument. Um, even though hypertension does affect Black people, even though heart conditions like hypertension do affect Black people much more than they affect their white counterparts. That is because of a faulty healthcare system. That is because of a healthcare system that discredits Black pain and discredits Black experiences and discredits Black ailments. And again, you know, the opioid addiction falls into the same category. Like, we see white addiction. We see people who are addicted to drugs who are white as people who have just fallen off the bandwagon as lone wolves, as, you know, people that shouldn't be defined by their past or their struggles or their traumas. But when black people are addicted to opioids, it becomes it becomes a scapegoat for them being murdered by police. And so again, I'm not going to go too in depth in that because I will get very, very angry if I do. But that that was the overarching argument that the defense tried to use to justify or excuse Chauvin's excessive force against George Floyd. Um, despite those BS arguments that the defense had, Chauvin was declared to be guilty on all three murder charges brought against him after only 10 hours of jury deliberation. And when I tell you that I'm more surprised that it was it, that it took that quickly for the jury to come out with that verdict than it was than I was at the fact that he was guilty on all three charges, I am not even kidding you. 10 hours of jury deliberation. That is insane to me. And just to give you some perspective on like the, the quote unquote average jury deliberation, obviously it depends on the case. It depends on the trial. It depends on a whole, it depends on a litany of other circumstantial evidence and circumstances in terms of the trial and the case of how long a jury will deliberate for. But most jury deliberations take about three to four days or at least a couple of days at the very least. Sometimes jury deliberations can take weeks or even months. Like, and the fact that this only took 10 hours, the fact that this was, that this became a catalyst for political divides, the fact that the death of George Floyd became a catalyst for political strife and the cavernous political divide that we saw just get even bigger in the last year, the fact that it only took 10 hours was really shocking to me. But to continue, he was declared to be guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. And even though we still have the sentencing, which is to ha which is going to happen later this month, he could face up to 40 years for the, for the second-degree murder charge. He could face up to 25 for the third-degree murder charge and up to 10 for the second-degree manslaughter charge, with which you know, do some quick maths, that adds up to a, about a total of 75 years, which is the, the longest sentence that Derek Chauvin could get is if the judge gives him the maximum sentences for all three convictions, which for him would most likely be a life sentence. So we don't have really any reason to celebrate yet. We still have to get through the sentencing. We still have to make sure that justice is served on that end. But to, to get through this trial with a guilty conviction on all three murder charges is a huge win. Not, not for the movement in general, not for black people in this country in general. You know, this is a penny in the well. This is a drop in the ocean. 
but for his family and for George Floyd's legacy and, you know, more than anything for his daughter, I think, I think this is huge for them. And I, I'm thankful for them more than anything that they are seeing justice be served in some way, even if it's only the early trials of it. I wanted to talk about the trial more in depth than I did the first time because I want to be optimistic when looking at events from a decade ago and comparing them to the events of today and seeing the progression because there has been progress and it is in fact happening. For example, the, the, the one thing that has been playing in my head over and over again for the last year since the death of George Floyd and since we found out that Derek Chauvin was going to jail and going to trial and going to be sentenced was... I was, I've just been repeatedly reminded of the trial of George Zimmerman in the killing of Trayvon Martin and what happened and how Zimmerman was let off and later sued Trayvon's family for emotional distress, quote unquote, for over, for over $10 million. George Zimmerman was let off scot-free. He had not faced any punishments. He is still a free man to this day in the fact that he can then turn around and sue Martin's family for the emotional distress of killing their 17-year-old child for more money than they're even worth is, in the simplest of words, disgusting. And that, that is actually a perfect segue into the rest of this week's episode because the killing of Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman getting off scot-free was actually how the Black Lives Matter movement started. It was the catalyst for the Black Lives Matter movement. And that was the death. That was the death of a 17-year-old boy in his own front yard was when Black people in this country decided to stand up and say, we need something for this. We need something to fight for justice because it's very obvious that justice will not be fought on behalf of us. We have to fight for it ourselves. And to look back at that, which was eight years ago, Trayvon Martin was killed in 2013. To look back on that eight years ago and to see where we are now and to see where we have the potential to go now, to me, is very empowering. And that's not to say that I'm diminishing the, the lack of justice that has been given to all of the victims of the past, because I think that they all need their justice, even if it's a decade, two decades later. But that is to say that it's nice to see that we're going somewhere good, that we're going somewhere better than we have been. With all of that being said, now we enter the conversation on the events and growth that we've experienced as a society of the last year along with the progressive denial and acceptance of both police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement in the last several decades. I'm going to start with the last year just because I think it'll be quicker than focusing on the broader scope of history and then narrowing it down. I feel like it will be easier to start with the last year and then just grow from there. But in the last year, I'm going to focus explicitly on what we did as individuals and a society that was both ineffective and detrimental to the movement and what worked along with what we need to continue to implement going forward. And I know that might be a little bit of a weird way to look at it, but a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. That is one of my favorite quotes when it comes to discussing issues like this. If we do not fix our flaws and if we do not focus on bettering and acknowledging our shortcomings and rectifying them in order to make our efforts more conducive in the overarching movement, we will not accomplish the things that need to be accomplished in order to make this country a safer, better, and happier place for not just Black people, but for all people, and especially people of color. So first, I'm going to focus on the ineffective things, and then I'm going to focus on the things that we did that were effective and that I think we need to keep the same energy with moving forward. But the first thing that, was, that I felt like was very ineffective and very toxic to the movement last summer was the amount of performative activism that I personally saw, especially on social media. 
And while there was a lot of very well-intentioned and real activism that took place last summer, there was even more performative activism. And if you don't know what performative activism is, it is activism, I'm just going to use my own definition by the way, but it's activism that's done only in certain spaces around certain people or activism that is only done online for likes or to promote or and or maintain an image. And that's what we mostly saw last year. And in turn, that's what most people were talking about when they used the term performative activism was the activism that was very apparent and existent online and on social media. This is extremely harmful. And I might have a lot of people questioning me and being like, how is it harmful? How is performative activism detrimental to the overarching movement? Because activism is activism, or at least activism should be activism. And any word spread or anything said in support of the movement should be seen as a good thing. And I'm going to explain to you why performative activism is so harmful and what we need to do to combat it as individuals and as a society and as communities. Performative activism to me is extremely harmful because these individuals do not care about educating themselves or truly understanding what black liberation entails. And when it comes to the hard part, when it comes to the hard part of activism, when it comes to the real gritty work of activism, these people are nine times out of ten absolutely nowhere to be found. Because these are the same people that post the IG infographics and hold up their bedazzled Black Lives Matter signs for IG pictures while wearing crop tops and boyfriend jeans to their local protest. But when it comes to doing the real things, like getting involved in their local, state, and government elections, when it comes to phone banking and sending emails and demanding better things from their legislators, or even doing something as simple as broaching those very uncomfortable but necessary conversations with friends and family... Again, these people are nowhere to be found because they're not committing to their quote-unquote activism to make this country better for black people. Nine times out of ten, they're committing to their activism to promote their own self-image and try to not make themselves look bad by not saying anything, which was unfortunately a lot of what I personally saw last year. Think about it like this. Performative activists are like the Kendall Jenners of the world. They think that racism can be solved with a Pepsi ad. The bottom line is, if you are worried that you may fit into this category of people, I and every black person need you to re-examine the conversations about race that you are having with the people who look exactly like you. Not when you're in the presence of your one and only black friend or hiding behind the guise of social media. If you actually, truly, and genuinely care about making this country a safer place for black people and people of color alike, you need to focus on having the uncomfortable conversations and taking a step outside of your comfort zone and doing the real hard and gritty work that activism actually demands of you instead of just posting a couple IG stories and calling it good. Alright, the second thing that was a huge topic of discussion last summer and something that I mainly took notice of and found to be very annoying and kind of disgusting was the conversation of activism burnout or just burnout in general. One of the most ridiculous terms that people, white people, coined last summer was the term allyship fatigue. And if you don't know what allyship fatigue is or you've never heard of it, one, Congrats, you've saved yourself a couple brain cells. And two, I'm going to define it for you right now. The term allyship fatigue is the idea that when allies of Black people or the Black Lives Matter movement become drained or exhausted by the re-education one must go through to now be anti-racist. 
And there's not a lot I want to say about this. Quite frankly, there's not a lot that I have to say about this because I think this is ridiculous that this even was a thing and that someone even took the time to come up with this. But there's one very pertinent and one very important point that I want to drive home right now. If y'all are going to make allyship fatigue a thing, then I'm going to coin the term niggership fatigue while we're at it. It's the fatigue that black people feel from having to shoulder the burden of actually dealing with and succeeding in spite of racism, which is something that white people who just came to terms with racism and their intrinsic contribution to a racist system last June somehow see as being the same thing. If you are burnt out from having conversations about or coming to terms with the reality of racism, just take a second, or maybe two, and try to compartmentalize how truly debilitating it is to actually have to deal with it. This is not and will never be about you and how you feel. If you are this exhausted, if you need to take a couple weeks off social media, or I don't even know what, what allyship, what people were telling people who are experiencing allyship fatigue to do. If you feel a need to delete your social media, if you feel a need to focus on self-care and decompress and do all of these self-care things in order to combat your allyship fatigue, what am I as a black person supposed to do to combat the actual and real racism that I face every single day just by existing in this country as a black person? What is me and every single other black person supposed to do about that? This this type of ignorance, this type of just disgusting behavior can be avoided if y'all just took the time to put yourself in someone else's shoes before you just opened your mouth and just said the first dumb thing that wanted to come out. Please, just take two seconds, step outside of your white privilege, step outside of your whiteness for a couple of seconds, and re-examine the world around you and re-examine how you're looking at it. Because I guarantee you will be a much better ally and you will save yourself from this quote-unquote allyship fatigue if you take the time to do just that. All right, and don't get me wrong, there's a ton of things that were done last summer that I thought were unproductive to the actual Black Lives Matter movement itself, but I just wanted to focus on three things right now. And the last of the three things that I wanted to touch on very, very quickly that I think encompasses all of the other things I've said so far was the me versus we thinking that a lot of white people had last year. To continue seamlessly off of the point that I just made, I feel as though both externally and internally, white people truly began to center what happened last year and last summer around them and their own comfort zones. And I know it might be hard to think of like examples of when that happened, so I'm going to give you some. In terms of externally, an example of this that came up was when the end of June, early July, and even into August came rolling around and people were still protesting, people were still having these conversations, black people were still demanding more and more from their white counterparts, and white people had the audacity to hop online, get in their friend groups, and ask this very, very tone-deaf question. Are we seriously going to do this all summer? This was a question that I saw on social media everywhere. This was a question I had asked to me by, my, why pe why, by white people in my own life. And if you're having a hard time believing that, don't get me wrong, I had a hard time believing it too. But yes, this was in fact a question that was asked all the time last summer. Was white people turning around and saying, are we seriously going to spend all this time on this? Are we seriously going to spend all summer talking about this? Do I seriously have to dedicate all of this time? Do I seriously have to dedicate my entire summer to this? The answer to all of those questions is, uh, yeah, but 
but I'm gonna talk more in depth about that in a couple minutes. But first I wanna talk about how this manifested internally for a lot of white people. Internally, the, the, the best example that I could come up with was the fact that the most bought book on anti-racism last summer was written by a white woman. And maybe I'm looking too deep into this, but to me, both of those instances, both the example that I gave of the external manifestation of this and the internal manifestation of this presents to me as saying, I'm willing to do the bare minimum and what's demanded of me as long as it placates to my own comfort zone. And I'm going to say this right now. I'm going to say it once and I'm going to say it proudly and I'm going to say it boldly. That is not activism. Activism is extremely uncomfortable. Hell, this podcast is my own little form of activism, and it's centered entirely around making those very same uncomfortable conversations palatable. I know, I know firsthand that activism is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to read facts about the world around you that do nothing but drain you. It's uncomfortable to do nothing but read news stories and read books and read journal entries and watch videos and watch documentaries about how much the world around you sucks and about how much people around you suck, including people who might look, act, and sound exactly the same way you do. Don't get me wrong, I know it's hard, I know it's draining, and I know it's not fun. But guess what? Sometimes doing the right thing isn't easy, and sometimes doing the easy thing isn't right. It's easy to turn your back on the Black Lives Matter movement and continue on with your merry little way, comfortable in your white privilege and comfortable in the socioeconomic spot in the society that you hold as a white person. But that's not the right thing to do. And last summer, we highlighted that. Last summer, we made that known to every single white person in this country that turning your back on the black people, turning your back on the people of color in this country who need you and need your white privilege to stand up for them is not the right thing to do. But it's also not the easy thing to do to turn her back around and use your white privilege to not only uplift people of color in this country, but also use your white privilege to dismantle the systems of racism that have held them back from succeeding for so very long. I know it's not easy, but it's the right thing to do and it's what's being demanded of you right now. So if you go throughout your life unable and unwilling to participate in true, real, and effective activism because it upsets and dismantles your own comfort zone, Congrats. You aren't doing what's right. You're doing what's easy. And that might have been uncomfortable to hear, but if it was uncomfortable to hear, it's because it's probably true for you. This world demands things from me. This world demands me that I use my privilege as a straight cisgender woman, as a woman born into a first world country. This world demands things of me that make me uncomfortable. But the, the comfort of knowing that I'm doing what's right, the comfort of knowing that I'm making this world a better, safer, and happier place for every single individual living in it, to me, far outweighs the uncomfortableness of stepping outside my comfort zone and having to put my hand out or sacrifice my privilege in order to do just that. I need every single white person listening. I need every single white person, not just in America, but in the world to realize that and to have that same mindset. Because if we all had that same mindset, we would not have to deal with police brutality. We would not have to march in the streets for Black Lives Matter protests. We wouldn't have to have pride parades or a Black History Month. We wouldn't have to do any of this because our world would be equal as it is. But unfortunately, it's not. And until we all grow up and mature a little bit and obtain these mindsets that I just told you, our world will continue to be unequal and you're going to have to continue to stomach the fact that people are going to continue to call you out on call you out on your BS until you do just that. 
Sometimes I just like go off on tangents and black out for a little bit and then I come out of it and I'm like, wow, did I really just say all of that? I am so incredibly smart and wonderful. I need to like have a TED talk. But anyways, now I want to talk more about the good and what we did last summer that was effective and what we did last summer that I think we need to maintain and keep the same energy with going forward. First things first, I do think that the IG infographics can be bastardizing and pretty awful at times. However, I also think that depending on the topic and how they're executed, I think they can be great outlets for education, especially when it comes to helping neurodivergent people or people with learning disabilities or reading disabilities or any of those other disabilities coming to understand in depth or hard to broach topics. And I think it even helps in a way for people who don't really care about these topics or have no interest in reading these infographics because a lot of the times they are super colorful, they are super eye-catching, and they have num like really big or really astonishing numbers in them that just catch your eye even if you have no interest in reading them whatsoever. Like I said, I think it all depends on how they're executed and the topic in which they're trying to broach, but I think they can be super helpful in getting people informed even if they have no intention of being informed anyways. Like even some of the ones that I've seen, especially the ones that play with numbers and play with statistics a little bit and are really colorful and are meant to draw your attention in. I mean, even I've learned some things and I've learned them in ways that are easy for me to regurgitate and repeat back to other people and involve other people in the same amount of activism that I've been involved in since the infographics have gotten really big. So even though I think that they can potentially bastardize the movement, especially depending on who uses them and how they're used, I do think they have been extremely helpful in educating people along the way. And more than anything, they've been educating people in quick and digestible ways. All right. And the last thing that I think was really effective that we, we used last summer in order to help people understand and be, edu be more educated about racism in the world around them was we helped people come to terms with the fact that we, that we as black people, I'm, I mean we as black people, we have no obligation to teach them anything. And we helped people understand that it is 2020, or it was 2020, now 2021. If you want to have any question answered, if you want to do any research, if you want to educate yourself on any topic, you have the ability to do that with a click of just a few buttons. And by solidifying that thought in people's head, by reminding them that, hey, black people are not here to teach you anything. Black people are not here to re-expose their traumas in the efforts of trying to make you care about racism. We forced people to do their own education. We forced people to do their own research. And in turn, we forced people to find resources for their own education. And I think that even though there was a very small, a much smaller percentage of people in society that actually went that route and actually like pursued their own education and pursued their own resources to do just that. I think that the people who did that, I think that even though it was probably a smaller percentage than I'm willing to admit of people who actually did that, I think we have done such, I think we have gone forward such bounds in terms of people coming to terms with the fact that if they don't know something, if they want to find something out, if they want to educate themselves on black plight, if they want to educate themselves on black struggle, all they have to do is look it up and there will be a litany of results that come up that can teach them about that. You know, like like last summer, even though I think it's ridiculous that the most bought book on anti-racism was that, was that stupid white, white fragility book written by that white woman. 
But there were also a ton of other books that were bought last summer. Like a big one was The Color of Law, which was a book about redlining and how, you know, institutional racism plagues our housing and the, the housing infrastructure in our country and how generational wealth also plays a huge key role in that. And a lot of people were educated about how truly intrinsic and how truly deep racism runs in this country's history. Like that was a great outlet and that was a great educational resource for, pe for white people to read last summer. And there were a ton of other books that people bought. There were a ton of other books that became really big and really popular that white people bought and read. Like I think stuff like that and I think us forcing white people to come to terms with the fact that black people are not here for their education. Black people are not here to combat their own ignorance. I think, like I said, that did amazing things for not just white people in general and white society in general, but I think that also did great things for the Black Lives Matter movement. Because then you have people who not only are more involved because they know more, because they're willing to use the knowledge that they've learned to actually do their part, but if they don't know something, they now have the resources to learn that, whatever they don't know, to learn that something that they don't know or that they should know. And I just, like, I, I think that that was probably the best thing that came from last summer was us being able to share resources where people were able to learn and combat their own ignorance and become better allies to the Black community and the Black Lives Matter movement in general. All right, I have been talking for a while, I've come to realize, so I'm going to try and wrap up the rest of this episode quickly and kind of just gloss over the important points of what I have to talk about next. But now I want to delve into the history of police brutality. And even though police brutality has existed for almost a century and a half now since the end of slavery, which I believe I've talked about in a past episode in the form of slave patrols and sharecropping and all of that other stuff, um, that's not really what I want to talk about right now. I want to focus explicitly on the more modern instances of police brutality, specifically the instances that we've been able to see because of modern technology, the instances that have been recorded and videotaped, etc., etc., the first case like this that I can think of, the first case like this that I think any of us will be able to think of, is the beating of Rodney King. In the night and or early morning of March 3rd of 1991, Rodney King was driving intoxicated through the streets of Los Angeles, which caused him to catch the attention of the Los Angeles Police Department. They then involved Mr. King in a high-speed chase that lasted for about eight miles before finally being able to pull him over and pull him from the car. After this, they ruthlessly beat him, they kicked him, they punched him, they beat him with their batons, and it just so happened that the street that Rodney King was finally detained on in the area of that street specifically was across from a house that had security cameras on the porch, and the, the person that had these security cameras on their porch managed to catch the entire beating, and the, the entirety of... Rodney King being brutalized by the police. This was the first time that we saw documentation of police brutality. Before now, Black people said it was real. Before now, Black people said it happened, but no one believed them. No one actually bothered to pay attention or believe what Black people were saying. And more than anything, nobody had the evidence. I mean, granted, you shouldn't need the evidence to believe what Black people are saying about racism or what, white, or what women are saying about sexism, you know, any of that stuff. But Unfortunately, that's not how America works. So we didn't have any evidence, therefore we didn't believe black people. But like I said, this was the first time when we did have solid evidence. This was the first time when we had a very visible and very clear instance of police brutalizing a black man. 
And so fast forward, the officers involved are, you know, all imprisoned, all indicted on various charges. And the following year, they are let off. They're let off on scot-free. And I'm sure a lot of you also recall, if you don't necessarily recall the beating of Rodney King, I'm sure a lot of you recall the LA riots of 1992. And granted, those were also spurred out of a Korean shop owner murdering a 15-year-old black child. However, despite that, and an also large contributor of those events and also large contributor of those riots was the fact that the four officers who beat Rodney King nearly half to death were let off scot-free and saw no punishment even to this day for the actions that they committed against him. Rodney King died prematurely. Um, he actually, I believe, killed himself, drowned himself in his pool because of long-standing mental disabilities and mental illnesses that he suffered from because of the damage that these officers inflicted on him physically. He suffered with physical and mental disabilities for the rest of his life because of the damage that they inflicted on him. I think they, they broke several of his bones. They fractured his skull in several places. Um, his, his brain started to swell. I mean, you, you, you can look at pictures of him after the beating and he's unrecognizable. It was atrocious. It was awful to see people beat someone just because they could. And I think that that's what people realized that officers had the power to do. Because if Rodney had not stopped at that particular house, if they had not managed to pull him over at that particular house, I mean... We, who knows what would have happened? Who knows what the outcome would have been? If we had not had that video evidence, there's a good to fair chance that these men might not have even gone to prison or gone to jail awaiting a trial. In this video, I also want to note, this video was shown on national television. This video was shown all across the country. And this was before like the quote unquote internet was actually a real thing. So, I mean, this video went viral before going viral was even like even existed. Like, that goes to show you how big this was. And that's why at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned the beating of Rodney King. And I said that, you know, this this was the, the killing of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd and the trial of Derek Chauvin was easily the biggest instance and the most notarized instance of police brutality since the beating of Rodney King, because it was. We have not had an instance of police brutality that gained this much national attention since the beating of Rodney King. And I think that we can attribute that to the fact that we spent the previous three months of the video being released, the previous three months preceding the death of George Floyd in our homes doing nothing else but sitting on our phones all day. So we were forced, we were literally forced to subject ourselves to this man's pain. We were literally forced to subject ourselves to this man's last moments on earth. And when, you, when you're forced to reckon with that, just like the people of 1991 were forced to reckon with seeing Rodney King being beaten within an inch of his life, it's uncomfortable and it forces you to want to do something. And that's why, you know, the, the people of LA in 1992 rioted and that's why the, the people of last year of 2020 took to the streets and protested and got online and posted those infographics and did what they had to do in order to stand up and say that we're tired of this. And I think that, you know, part of the progression of us dealing with this and part of the progression of us compartmentalizing this and realizing how how normalized this is in American society and this being police violence against black Americans is that we're starting to come to terms with the fact that it might be normal, but it doesn't mean that we can't change it and it doesn't mean that we have to be okay with it. 
And I mean, it's, it's been a very gradual progression. And I say that because, you know, fast forward about, about two decades after the beating of Rodney King, two, 22 years after the beating of Rodney King, and you have the murder of Trayvon Martin, you have the trial of George Zimmerman, and that man got off once again. And then you had black women, you had black people all across this country saying, this has been happening for far too long where police officers murder children, they murder men, they murder women, and they are able to walk away with blood on their hands and continue to live their normal lives, even though there are communities that will never recover from this. And that's when Black Lives Matter was formed. Like I said, Black Lives Matter was formed in 2013 after George Zimmerman got off for the murder of Trayvon Martin. I told you guys that a little bit earlier. And I just want to make this clarification. I know I've mentioned it a couple of times, but um, Trayvon was killed in 2012. And then the trial of George Zimmerman happened in 2013, and that was when George Zimmerman got off. And then that's when Black Lives Matter was created because George Zimmerman got off scot-free. I just wanted to make that clarification. Trayvon did not die, and the trial of George Zimmerman did not happen in the same year. Trayvon was murdered the year before, so I just wanted to make that clarification while I was here as well. And Black Lives Matter was created for the same reason that the LA riots happened. Rodney King was not the first. Rodney King was not the only. Rodney King was not the only contributing factor to the LA riots. There have been and had been prior to that years and decades and centuries of oppression and racism and discrimination and segregation within Los Angeles. A lot of that was perpetuated and committed by the police. And even though, like I said, Rodney King was not the first instance, he he was the last one that people were willing to put up with without fighting back. And Black Lives Matter, I feel like, was kind of the same precedent being set. Was like Trayvon Martin was not the first victim of police brutality to be killed by police. Trayvon Martin most certainly will not be the last. And it's so clear that Trayvon Martin was not the last, unfortunately. But he was the last life that we were willing to see taken before we said, you know what, enough is enough. We need to do something about this. We need to stand up and we need to highlight what is going on. We need to paint the picture of it, these, this injustice. We need to paint the picture of the communities that will never heal from this. We need to paint the picture of the families who have an empty seat at the dinner table now. We need to paint the pictures of the children who will never get to graduate high school or the children who will never be able to hold their fathers again or the mothers who will never be able to say goodbye. We need to paint the picture of the fact that the consequences of police brutality, the consequences of qualified immunity are real, and they are harmful not just to the Black community, but to every community. Because until there is no justice, there will be no peace. And that has been the, the slogan of the Black Lives Matter community, and it's, it's so perfect. And people use it as a way to justify the fact that, oh, Black Lives Matter is violent, oh, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. Will you like look around for a minute at the amount of people that have been laid to rest, at the amount of people who have been villainized by this country after they have been murdered by police? Will you take a minute to look at how many officers who have murdered black people have been acquitted of all charges and have been able to go back to their jobs like nothing ever happened? Who do you think has the power in those situations? It's so empowering and it's so heartwarming to see the growth and to see the progression that we are able to obtain moving away from our disgusting and quite frankly embarrassing past. But I need people to understand 
that just because we're moving on, just because George Floyd got his justice does not change the fact that there are dozens upon dozens upon hundreds of victims from yesterday who have not. And I also want to make this point very, very clearly that George Floyd did not die for this. That was that I remember I remember Nancy Pelosi. Oh, this this bitch was like insufferable the last year. She has been an insufferable cow for the last year. And it was literally everything she did from wearing the African kente cloth with all of those other white United States senators to touching Gianna's hair at after the the guilty conviction of Derek Chauvin came out on stage. Oh my god, that made me cringe, by the way. Because if you haven't listened to one of my last episodes where I talked about why it's rude to touch black girls' hair, like, that was, like, watching that video, my heart, my chest tightened for that little girl. And she looked up at her mother and she literally said, she touched my hair. And I was like, she did touch your hair. Like, what? Like, what in... Oh my god. Anyways. But one of the, one of the worst things that Nancy Pelosi has done in the last year was she made this video and like wrote this speech and she was looking up at the sky and she was saying, thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. And that was like the same, like she was pretty much just saying that over and over again with different words. And all I could think was, this is how y'all sound every single year on Martin Luther King Day. When you say, Martin Luther King died for this. Martin Luther King did not die for shit. He was murdered. Actually, no. He was assassinated. It was planned and premeditated. Martin Luther King was assassinated because he fought for equal rights. Just like George Floyd was murdered because of the color of his skin. Do not play semantics with me. Because you are using the completely wrong terms to describe how these people's lives were taken away from them. George Floyd did not die for justice. George Floyd should still be here today. We shouldn't have to watch people get murdered. Daughters shouldn't have to grow up without their fathers. 17-year-old girls shouldn't have to have a recording of a man getting the life choked out of them in order for us to realize that the way we're doing things in this country is wrong. What a disgusting outlook to have. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. He did not sacrifice his life for justice. He unwillingly was murdered in the middle of, a, of the street over a counterfeit $20 bill. How do you see those things as being the same? How do you even come close to saying that that is someone who sacrificed their life? Again, it just gives me the same energy as white people who are like, Martin Luther King died for this. Martin Luther, this is what Martin Luther King died for. No, no. If it was up to anyone, Martin Luther King would probably still be healthy and alive today. He did not want to be a martyr. Neither did George Floyd. Both of those people were normal, happy people who just wanted to live their lives. And not only that, but they wanted to live their lives with the same privileges, with the same equality, with the same happiness and success that white people are able to do every single day. And we are being further reminded of the fact that it is impossible for black people to do that as long as we harness these mindsets that Martin Luther King was a martyr and George Floyd sacrificed his life. It's bullshit. And quite frankly, if you want me to be really honest, neither of them should have had to die in order for us to realize that the way we've been treating black people in this country is wrong. <sighs>
I thoroughly hope that we are able to, as individuals, as a society, as communities, as a country, and as a world, are able to get to some point in our history where we can not only bring justice to every single victim of police brutality from today, but also the victims of police brutality from yesterday and the day before that, and every single victim throughout our history that has not gotten their justice. But more than anything, I want us to be able to fix the broken system of policing that we have in this country to prevent further death from happening. Because that's something that I, I noticed was getting shut down a lot last summer when black people were talking about that. Because white, people, white people's conversation about police brutality is always about justice. And black people's conversation about police brutality is always about reform. And that's something I found to be very interesting last summer was like white people don't even understand how deep this runs. They think that the entire system will be fixed. They think that their work will be done once Derek Chauvin is sentenced to 75 years in prison. And unfortunately, I'm going to pop your bubble a little bit. That's not true. There are going to be more George Floyds. There are going to be more Breonna Taylors. There are going to be more Ahmaud Arbery's. There are going to be more Tamir Rice's and there are going to be more Trayvon Martin's. And there are going to be more of every single victim of police brutality in our nation's history. And our history is going to continue to repeat itself until we can rectify the system, the very broken systems that allow for this type of death that allow for this type of murder to take place every single day in this country. We are going to have to continue having these conversations. We're going to have to continue having these very uncomfortable moments of silence and very uncomfortable protests and riots and outcries and uprisings until something is done to fix the system that allows for this injustice to take place in the first place. I'm tired of having these conversations. So is every other black person in this country. I'm tired of going to protests. I'm tired of going to rallies. I'm tired of watching people break into Target and steal shit from Walmart. And I'm tired of having to get on social media and see people have the same goddamn arguments every single day. It shouldn't have to happen. Not because people shouldn't care, not because people need to find something else to talk about, but because we need to fix the very intrinsically racist system that we have been aiding in and abetting in since the very fucking beginning. Since 1619, over 402 years ago, since that first slave ship touched down on the beaches of Virginia and those first slaves were ushered off of the ships and forced to build this country from scratch for nothing but abuse and hatred and discrimination, we have been aiding in and abetting in and allowing for racism to feed off of this country and at the same time feed this country like a parasite. We have been allowing for it to grow and now it is so big and so invasive that we have to tear everything down and start from scratch if we even hope to achieve some sense of equality in the near future. And I'm sorry it has to be that way. I'm sorry we have to talk, have conversations about abolishment instead of reform. I'm sorry we have to have the uncomfortable conversations, and I'm sorry everything I'm saying seems so radical. But it's not my fault that it's like this. It's not my fault that these opinions are had, and it's not my fault that these are the conversations that are pervading on social media and in your real life. 
It's the fault of our ancestors. Not only that, but it's the fault of the people today who have refused to take action and instead allowed for all of this to just get worse and progress in a way that is past repair. If we have any hope of achieving equality, if we have any hope of getting to a place where we don't see color, where black and white and brown people of all races, ethnicities, and nationalities are on the same socioeconomic level in society, like I said, we have to start over. We have to start from the beginning. I've already said it before, so I'm not going to go too in-depth about it, but we have to get rid of our police departments entirely and start from the ground up. And we don't just have to do that with the police. We have to do that with almost every single system in this country. We have to do that with housing. We have to do that with education. We have to do that with our government and with our legislative systems. I don't think you guys understand how deeply ingrained racism is in American culture, in American culture. Even as a black person, even as a white person, it is impossible for you to invade it, evade it. Even if you're a white person with black friends or with black family, even if you're a white person who practices anti-racism, whether you want to admit it or not, you still profit off of and contribute to the very racist system that our country was built on. And it's so unfortunate that that's what it's come to. It's so unfortunate that this is where we're at, but denying it is only going to make it worse. So if we, like I said, if we have any hope of achieving true equality someday, the first step, the very first step to achieving that equality is acknowledging the very ugly truth that America was built off of and still continues to profit off of racism to this very day. All right. That was such a happy episode, wasn't it? Um, it was a long episode this week. It was also a very difficult episode to listen to this week. So I'm just going to wrap it up. I'm not going to give you guys a rotation this week. Um, I, I apologize. I'll have something good for you next week. I promise. But you already know the drill. If you enjoyed this week's episode, if you're excited to hear me again after two weeks off, please feel free to follow and subscribe for weekly episodes that come out every single Sunday. Also, if you think someone could learn something from this podcast, especially this episode, please feel free to share it with someone, whether that be your friends, whether that be your family, whether that be you posting it on social media, do whatever you feel is necessary to get the word out and help other people be enlightened by my wonderful voice every single Sunday. Also, be sure to follow me on all of my social media. All of my handles are just at Jalen Tully. All right, you guys, that is it for this week's episode. I hope you learned something. I hope I helped you see something in a different light. And if not, if you already agreed with me on everything, I at the very least hope I invoked some thought-provoking and insightful conversations in your mind this week. As always, be sure to leave this episode and every single episode I have uploaded and every single episode I am going to upload, ready to educate often, learn freely, and always, always, always love equally. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Even if you don't feel like progress is happening, it is. It's just happening very, very slowly. But we'll get there someday. I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I really am. I, I truly am. But with all of that being said, I'll talk to you guys next week and take care of yourselves.